First Easter was not so much about bunnies and chocolate. It was about something strange, though, something weird that happened to the body of Jesus. And the first followers of Jesus called that thing the resurrection. And the resurrection was an English word that we translated from a Greek word. And that Greek word is called anastasis. And it literally means uprising. And it's kind of weird to think of resurrection as an uprising, a revolution. And it was an uprising by Jesus and the kingdom of God against the kingdom of Rome, against the kingdom of hate. And when you start an uprising against the empire, the empire tends to strike back. It's part of the deal. And so this is one way to understand why Jesus died in the first place. That on Good Friday, Jesus received the death penalty for his crimes against the Roman Empire and his crimes against the religious establishment. And so we have the values of Jesus and the way of Jesus that go against the values of Rome, the values of the empire. And this uprising began before Jesus was even born. And we see it in Mary's pregnancy announcement. Did you all ever put out pregnancy announcements when you had kids? Mom and dad are getting me a human. This was Mary's pregnancy announcement. He has taken rulers down from their thrones. He has put those who are in a place that is not important to a place that is important. He has filled those who are hungry with good things. And he has sent the rich people away with nothing. Taken rulers down from their thrones. You can see how that would make the Roman Empire feel a little threatened. And it continued, this uprising, with the birth announcement that the angels gave to the shepherds. I love this birth announcement. Our latest tax deduction at the bottom, and love and waiting for our refund, John and Nancy was. This is the, the angel's birth announcement to the shepherds. The angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. That is not religious language there. That's political language. Savior and Lord were titles that were reserved for Caesar, the emperor of Rome. We, we see a birth announcement for Caesar Augustus that came from around the same time as Jesus. And it says, the most divine Caesar sent to us as a savior, the birthday of the God, Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. Do you see the similarities between the birth announcement of Jesus and the birth announcement of the Roman emperor? You can see why Herod might want to have Jesus and all the firstborn kids killed in Bethlehem. He was a threat to the Roman empire. The birth of Jesus announced that there is a kingdom and there is a king that is greater than Rome and greater than Caesar. And this king and this kingdom would bring peace to the poorest members of society, to the outcasts, to the excluded. Rome had a strategy for peace. They had what's called Pax Romana, if you've heard of that, the peace of Rome. And this was some political uh, propaganda from the first century Roman emperor Hadrian. Peace through strength or failing that, peace through threat. Rome gets peace through violence and strength, and power, and threat, and fear. Jesus, on the other hand, offered another way. We see this in Matthew 5. 
You've heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' kind of peace came through not fear and threat and violence, but loving your enemy. Jesus started a kind of uprising against the religious establishment, too. He was not... uh, a friend of the religious so much. He had a reputation for being a friend of sinners. When you're a friend of sinners, you're an enemy of the religious. This passage from Mark 2, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. And when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? I don't know if we have any other Star Wars fans, but do you remember that part where he talks about the rebel scum? Uh, I didn't have that in my notes. I just thought of that. Why does he eat with such scum? Filth. Jesus had a reputation that the religious people did not like. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors. Tax collectors had a reputation. Tax day was this past Monday. Everyone's favorite day of the year, right? We got ours filed an hour before the accountant's office closed. It was a close one. I love... um, Uh, Swanson's from Parks and Rec philosophy on taxes. Cursing, there is only one bad word, taxes. (laughs) Tax collectors during the first century were despised. Imagine going to your accountant. They say, all right, you've got $1,000 owed to the government. And you have another $1,000 owed to me for miscellaneous services and fees. And if you don't pay that, I'm going to put you in prison. You probably would not want to have dinner with your accountant. Jesus did. He was a friend of the tax collectors. Maybe because he knew that helping people, getting into people's minds and hearts, wasn't through announcing sermons on the streets with a bullhorn. It was through getting to know people. It was through building relationships with people. And the religious people did not like that at all. Jesus included people that the establishment excluded the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the poor, the sick, the ritually unclean, children, women, people with disabilities, all of these people were excluded. And Jesus said, no. No, they belong to the kingdom of God. They're good. And when you include the people that the establishment excludes, it causes a little bit of tension. Because when we're on the inside, I don't want to hear that those people on the outside are just as important and special as me. Jesus would have walked into his middle school lunchroom. He would have gone straight for the table. There's no one else sitting by the kid. He broke laws, religious laws, in order to show love to people. The religious people didn't like that. He offered people forgiveness of sins. And the only place that offered forgiveness of sins was the temple. So religious people didn't like that. It causes tension. The temple was Herod's. Herod was an employee of Rome. And Jesus went into the temple the week before that he died. And he saw these people, money changers, selling things and taking advantage of the poor. And he threw the tables up. And the religious people didn't like that. That was a crime of treason. So Jesus, the friend of sinners, an enemy of the state, 
And the week before Jesus died was Passover week. And this was the time where the, the Jewish people remembered when we were slaves to the Egyptians and God saved us from the Egyptians. So it was a time to remember that God saved us from oppression. And here in the first century, the Jews were oppressed all over again, not by the Egyptians, but by the Romans. And so there is talk in the air. Is God going to do this again? Is he going to save us from oppression? Is he going to do it? Is he going to send us someone like Moses, like he did way back when, and save us from the oppression from the Romans? So there's talk of uprising. There is talk of rebellion. Do we fight back? And so the Roman governor of Judea would sometimes, on Passover week, enter the city on war horses and chariots, and he'd have about 500 of the Roman legion with him, and they would surround the temple as if to say, don't you all even think about this whole rebellion thing. Remember the might, the power, the strength of Rome. And in the Gospels, we see the story of Jesus on the other side of the city having his own procession. And he rides in, and he's not on the war horse and the chariots, and he's not surrounded by an army. He's on a donkey. He's on a small worse. They're waving palm branches with signified victory. This guy is victorious. This guy is king. You can see how it would cause a little bit of tension. Political tension. Religious tension. And what Jesus was doing echoed this uh, prophecy in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Your king comes to you triumphant and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. He's going to take the bow, and he's going to break it in half. No more weapons. No more war horses. No more chariots. Peace for all the nations. Riding humbly on a donkey. The king has come, and the king is not... Caesar. You have the kingdom of God with the values of peace and mercy and love. And you have the kingdom of Rome with the values of fear and threat, coercion and violence and opposition. There's a spring day in 1163 and the foundation of Notre Dame was laid and it has withstood so many attacks over the years. Two world wars. But this last week, another spring day, a fire ravaged it. President Macron of France said that they would rebuild it in five years. Experts say that's probably going to take 10 to 15 years. It takes a long time to rebuild. And Jesus stood in front of the temple in Jerusalem. The only temple in all of Israel It was this massive structure revered as the house of God, a sacred holy place. The only place in the planet where God comes down to earth and meets with humans. It was a sacred place. And Jesus stood in front of the temple and he said, you destroy this temple, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. People are like, it took us 46 years to build this thing. What in the world are you talking about? But we know Jesus wasn't talking about a building, a church, a cathedral. He was talking about a different place, a true place where the divine and human meet. He was talking about himself. And later on in the New Testament, Paul says, you are the temple. You are where the divine dwells. You are a sacred, sacred place. You can see the religious people did not like that. The temple, they revolve their life around it. 
Their life was consumed with how do we get into the temple and experience God. And Jesus said, you can tear that down. It's not, it's not where God dwells in the first place. You're missing the point. So Jesus knew that what happens to people who confront systems of power is not good. It's not good. He knew that he was probably going to his death. So Jesus is headed to his execution at the end of Passover week. And even on the cross, as he looked down at the people who hung him there, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't realize what they're doing. Here we have love and forgiveness and mercy embodied in human form and killed. Three days later, Sunday morning, Easter morning, sunrise, it says, two women went to see Jesus, his body, and his body wasn't there. It says he's still alive. The world, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of fear, threw everything they could at love. And love could not be killed. The fear, the hate, the violence did not have the last word. Love could not be killed. The resurrection was the vindication that the power of love can conquer the love of power. And it's so strange because this whole story, it shows that, that God's kingdom of love wins through what seems like suffering and death and horrible things and weakness. That the kingdom of God spreads through sacrifice and suffering and giving of ourselves. It does not spread through conquest and fear and coercion. God's kingdom grows through weakness. That doesn't make sense. If you've ever read Brene Brown's books, any of them, you know that vulnerability is power. Have you all ever read any of those books? Yeah. Yes. Vulnerability is true power. That's what we see on the cross. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan Catholic, and uh, he says something really interesting, that God in the cross, when we look at the cross, we do not see a God that is all-powerful in the world's understanding of power. We see a God who is all-vulnerable. We see a God who is human, who hurts with us, who suffers with us, and in that vulnerability is true power. Romans 6, Paul writes, Therefore we, all of you, have been married with him through baptism and the dead, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. First John, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So Jesus comes back from the dead and he's talking to his followers and he gives this command, peace would be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. The uprising, the revolution has begun. Jesus did not rise from the dead and attack his enemies who put him there in the grave. He rose from the dead and he said to his followers, go live as I lived. Go love as I lived, as I love. That is how the uprising, the resurrection spreads. Go do what I did. Go follow my lead. And the cross, Jesus is, is in, fact, in effect saying, this is how evil is transformed into good. I'm going to take the worst you can imagine 
I want to bring something good out. We're going through the evil, the suffering, the hard times of life. It's hard to see the good. What I love about the cross is God says, in the, through all of that evil, it's, the good is what wins. There will always be good on the other side. There will always be love on the other side. Because love is stronger than fear, than hate, than death. December 14, 2012, Adam Lanza walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School and he killed 20 children and six staff. He turned the gun on himself. You want to talk about evil. And among the kids that, that was killed, six-year-old Jesse Lewis. And Jesse's mom spoke at his funeral, and I cannot imagine how she did that. And I cannot imagine the emotions that she was going through. At Jesse's funeral, Scarlett said, this tragedy started with an angry thought in the shooter's head which grew to rage and escalated to violence. So please honor Jesse's memory by consciously changing an angry thought into a loved one to make this a better world. Take the worst, bring something good. Just a few days before Jesse was killed, he wrote this on a chalkboard. And his own, he's six years old, couldn't spell. Nurturing, healing, love. Jesus was onto something when he said, kingdom of heaven belongs to these kids. You want to see what love, what heaven, what God looks like? You look at the child. And so Scarlett went on to found the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Foundation to develop programs to help children live lives without fear and hate so that they never get to the point the shooter did. Choose love. Love is stronger and hate. Love is stronger than violence and fear. And this morning I looked at the news on my phone and I was reminded that violence and threat and fear still are the drugs of choice for a lot of our world. And I don't know if you heard the 207 people killed in the churches and hotels in Sri Lanka this morning. 450 hurt and explosions there. And in Jesus we see the antidote to violence is not more violence. It's love. That is the most powerful force in this universe. And that love, Christ, is in you. It's in you. Christ in you. Every time you express love, kindness, mercy, a smile, you are expressing God. You are expressing resurrection power. You are expressing the uprising of love in this world. You are bringing God's kingdom to earth. Every single expression of love. When you see your child smile, that is the uprising of love. That is a glimpse of what the resurrection was when Jesus came back. Love will bring God's kingdom.
to this earth. Jesus said the two most important things, love God with everything in you, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's it. You give me your worst, I'll give you my best. You steal my coat, I'm going to go to my closet and give you all the rest of my clothes because you must really need them. You cut me off on the road, I'm going to turn my middle finger into a prayer for you. Probably not, I'm not very good at that. I have really bad road rage. But hopefully I'll get there. <laughs> choose love. When you choose love, you are tapping into your true self. The way God made you in His image. First John says God is love. When you choose love, you are tapping into who you really are. Truly are deep down. On the night before Jesus' death, he sat around a table with his closest friends and his disciples, and he told them that he's about to suffer and die. And his, his disciples start arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's like me telling you all that I'm about to suffer and die tomorrow, and then you all start asking me who, who's the coolest. It's a little insensitive. They're so consumed with ego and status and who's who and how do we get to the top. And in John's gospel, he, sh he explains that during that Passover meal, Jesus got on his knees and he started washing the feet of his disciples. As if Jesus was saying, let me show you what true power looks like. It looks like weakness. It looks like vulnerability. It looks like serving. It looks like love. That's true power. And so in John's gospel, Jesus gives them, he says, a new commandment I give you. You haven't heard this one before. Let me give you a new one. To love as I have loved you. That's the commandment he gives us. You are loved. Go love as he loves you. So the Passover meal signified freedom from Egypt. And so that's what the disciples were thinking in their head through that whole meal. And Jesus kind of reframed it. This Passover meal, this, this bread that's broken for you, this, this wine that's poured out for you is my body and my blood. And this means not freedom from Egyptian slavery. This means freedom from the life games of trying to get ahead of ego, of the pecking order, of the who's who, trying to get the promotion. He says the first will be last, the last will be first. This Passover meal is your constant reminder of what true power looks like. It looks like loving, it looks like serving, it looks like giving of yourself. And so this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. I, I am giving myself, a God who gives himself to us. That was a new idea. So we're going to take... Communion, Passover, and all are welcome to, all are invited to. We'll come up, and uh, Rob, do you want to help me with this? Yeah. Or Brian, do you want to do communion with us? It's probably more fun with the kids. <laughs> um, we'll get in the line, and Rob's going to play a song, and you'll tear off a piece of bread, and then dip it in the juice. Uh, we don't have wine today. In the future, maybe we'll have both wine and grape juice. Um, 1971, John Lennon wrote a song, a protest song, called Imagine. And he said in that song, to imagine a world 
where there is no greed, there is no hate, there is no violence. It reminds me of a passage that Isaiah wrote about long before John Lennon. Imagine a world where our weapons are turned into gardening tools and everyone has it. And the picture of that world is a picture of what it will look like when God's kingdom just flows through this world, flows through Issaquah, flows through your homes. There will be no more violence and hate and greed. There will be peace. And it starts with each of you taking part in the uprising of love. Mission gathering is a movement. It means we're not standing still, we're going somewhere. Everywhere you are, your home, your office, wherever you are, at the grocery store, you are a movement of love changing this world. With everyone you come in contact with, go love as you are loved. And so I invite you all to, he's going to play. Imagine, has anyone heard John Lennon in church? <laughs> and uh, it, is a, it kind of is a worship song. And you think of it as what Isaiah's words were, were hope for the world and peace. So we invite you all to